In the aftermath of the Second World War, there were two great powers, the United States and the USSR. And the formulation for these two great powers was a world of bipolarity. Only they really mattered. After the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, that gave rise to a new period of unipolarity, where America reigned supreme, and in all truth, it had no real adversaries. For many of you watching or listening, that was the only world you'd known. That's certainly the case for me. But it now seems that that world of unipolarity, of America being the only great power in the world, is over. It's in the rearview mirror. There's been Russia's war in Ukraine. There's been failed embargoes and sanctions on China, which increasingly is catching up with the US both economically and technologically. And more recently, we've seen the Houthis in Yemen, a group very few people had even heard about until last year, potentially influencing the price of oil and inflation across Europe and the wider world over the rest of 2024. Clearly, something has changed. Clearly, America doesn't define the rules of the game as it has done for much of the last 35 years. But what is a multipolar world if that's what we're moving towards? And who are the other poles? To discuss that, I have a brilliant guest. He is a co-host of a podcast called The Multipolarity Podcast. I can't think of a more appropriate person to talk to. Philip Pilkington, welcome to Downstream. Thank you for having me. I have to say I'm a huge fan. A wow. huge fan of your podcast, Multipolarity. Um... For some people watching or listening, they'll know what that word means. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it, it figures, it looms very large in your intellectual universe. You've named a podcast after it. So, so what does multipolarity mean? Well, I think it's probably easiest to describe relative to its cousin, unipolarity. There's also bipolarity, but we'll go with uni unipolarity. Um, basically, we've been living in a unipolar world since the collapse of the Soviet Union in whatever date you want to put on it, 1991, I suppose. And a unipolar world means effectively that it's run out of one pole, and that pole is in Washington, D.C., effectively. Um, since 1991, uh, probably a little earlier, actually, uh, America has pretty much run the world, in a sense. I mean, not obviously not completely. It, doesn't, it, 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 it has rival powers and so on, but they were always quite minor powers. And so it's kind of run the world. And I think most people kind of intuitively know what that means. And that's the world we all grew up in. Everyone listening will have grown up in that world. I grew up in that world. You grew up in that world. And um, that, well, the thesis of the podcast is that that's changing. And it was always going to change um, as China rose and so on. But I think um, in my mind, it wasn't going to change for some time, maybe 2050 or something like that. Um, but it's changing much more rapidly, and the catalyst for it has been the war in Ukraine, effectively, and all that's happened since, which is day by day, I'm sure everybody knows. Um, so to provide the definition, multipolarity is a world in which uh, there is no, first of all, unipolar power. There's certainly no absolute dominant power. But beyond that, it's not clear that there's even two superpowers, like we saw in the Cold War. Um, you have multiple powers. You have um, you have the United States. They're not going away. It's a big country. It's important. Um, we'll see what happens with Europe. You have China. I mean, that stands out. Russia. Russia's clearly proved itself now as a military power. 
Uh, it's not as economically powerful as China. And some people will say, oh, well, they're together and allied and stuff. And yes, we can talk about some of that, but they are separate countries. They are separate powers. What we're seeing in the Middle East right now is that Iran wields a lot more power than people previously thought. And so this is what it basically means. It's a world where... Um, where you have a fairly fluid system of power, I'd say. Uh, I wouldn't say evenly distributed, but it's it's distributed. And, um, and it'll be a very interesting world. I don't think we've seen anything like it since the 19th century. And this is a very different version of that because in the 19th century, we were dealing with something resembling multi-power within a small part of the world, which was Europe. Uh, and maybe the United States, arguable, and maybe Latin America. But uh, today, we're seeing it literally across the world. And so this is a completely new system that we're moving into in a way. And so what are the new poles? Yes, although ignoring China would obviously be silly. I mean, China is, I mean, we can talk about it in more detail. China is the real driving force um, behind a lot of this. Now, some people will say, oh, well, we're just moving to a new Cold War. This is how, how it was until quite recently framed in DC circles, for example, and probably in London. Oh, um, China is going to be a rival like the Soviet Union was. Um, that is misleading. That's not true. Ch China, and maybe we can talk about it uh, more in detail in a while, the, the BRICS alliance that's emerged that I think is very important and people are coming to see, I think is very important. They say, oh, well, this will just be a Chinese-led you know, G7, right? No, it won't work like that. But ignoring the Chinese influence is equally silly. China, um, China have set the, the multipolar world in motion, and they've done so because they've allowed another option to do business with. Just look what happened when Russia was heavily sanctioned by the West. It turned around and it started trading with China and it's able to get by trading with China. We now know that. Without China, that would have been impossible. So China was a, a necessary, maybe not a sufficient condition for the multipolar world to emerge, but not some new Cold War. I don't think that's what we're going to see. We'll get back to that because mm. uh, it's a huge topic. Just to establish your credentials, people might be saying, who is this guy? I mean, I've introduced you as a, as a podcast host. People say, so what? Anybody can have a podcast these days, even those those people at Navarra Media. You're an investment guy and you have an economics background. What I find interesting is you, you, you label yourself a macroeconomist. I would have thought you were a, a political economist in so much as you clearly look at the intersection of politics, culture, and economics, production. Um, is that a fair assessment? How, how do you label the sort of methodology through which you understand the world? I mean, yeah, all, all economics is political economy. I'm not a standard neoclassical macroeconomist. I was post-Keynesian economist, basically. Putting post, uh, as you say, I worked in investment for nearly a decade and putting political economists on your CV doesn't get you many jobs. Macroeconomist does because you can right. get macro, macro strategist jobs and so on. Um, I mean, I am technical. I'm, I'm, I mean, you, you want to be a little... I mean, I guess it's what the what the branding says. I think sometimes if you say political economist, people can go like, oh, you're kind of a historian mm. who wants, you know, to talk about economic statistics. I mean, I am technically a macroeconomist. I build macroeconomic models. I, I you know, I wrote a book on macroeconomics. Um, but you're right. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't view the world in terms of models or anything like that. I think uh, economics is a historical process. Um, I'm very interested in economic history. Uh, I think this new emerging field of what's becoming called geoeconomics is very compelling. It's a little poorly defined at the moment, but I think the idea is kind of interesting, just that you can kind of layer geopolitics on top of an economics framework. Because really the reason I, I started coming to the multipolarity stuff was working for years in investment management, 
um, you know, we'd study, you know, very, we wouldn't do it from a modeling, but we weren't building like ISLM or DSG models. That probably doesn't mean much to anyone that doesn't. What is an ISLM model? Go on. Illuminate this world just a little bit for our audience. (laughs) An ISLM model is like something Paul Krugman promotes, which is like, it's like a cross, you know, it looks like a supply and demand graph and then you push it out and then you can figure out the output rate and the relative interest rate and stuff. But this is how economists sometimes think. And modeling isn't useless, but it's not as compelling as people make out. So we, when I was working in finance, we were looking at more like r- r- realistic stuff, like how does the Chinese economy tick? Now, the interesting thing was geopolitics never played into it. I was always interested in geopolitics just from an intellectual point of view. So I'd always keep an eye on what was happening. But it never mattered. I'm not saying it never mattered in the world. Of course, like uh, when I was there, the Syrian civil war was going on. Really important war. I mean, we know in retrospect how important it was. But it made no economic difference. I mean, the worst, the worst... Um, wrinkle that that economics could, or, or that geopolitics could play into economics was an occasional fluctuation in the price of oil if there was action in the Middle East. But apart from that, you could just kind of discount it. And this was widely known. What's happened today is you can't discount it anymore. You can't actually do proper macro analysis, even for, for investment and finance people. And they're having a hard time catching up with this, you see, because they keep getting inflation wrong, actually. But now you can't. You can't actually understand anything in the world without understanding the geopolitical shifts. It's fascinating. And so that's what kind of got me interested. I said, well, I can't, I can't write about macro uh, issues anymore without talking about this geopolitical component. So it was kind of a natural evolution in a sense. But prior to, prior to the war in Ukraine, I, you could just count it as white noise. Everyone did. The, the career shift, not that you've given up on being a macroeconomist, but you're doing a podcast as well. I mean, that's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because let's be frank, Media and podcasts aren't as lucrative as investment banking or asset management or hedge funds. I'm sorry, Phil. You know, it's (laughs) it's too late to turn around. You're in for a penny and for a pound. So, what made you do the podcast? Because there's there's lots of people in that game who have interest in geopolitics. They might factor it into their working life, hobbies. You know, I know a Marxist in the city, Um, but it's unusual for them to then declare overtly these are what I these are the things I think put a podcast out talk about it write extensively about it I mean you're a writing machine that's another question you know how do you write so much so what what prompted that shift in terms of your public facing stuff I mean I I don't want to sound too messianic but it's a really scary situation and people don't understand it um people don't geopolitics people don't understand economics you can see that. I mean, if you want proof positive of that, look at the Russian sanctions. What a disaster. Not just the sanctions that didn't work on the economy, the um, seizure of the reserves that have led, as we maybe can talk about in more detail, to uh, the decline in hegemony of the US dollar. What were they thinking? Like, that's a crazy thing to do. Um, geopolitics people don't understand economics. It's really, really clear. So economics people better understand geopolitics on average, right? But even, you know, they don't see the connections as well. They t- tend to think in terms of modeling and so on. So I just kind of figured, like, this is really important stuff. Like, um, the decisions that are going to be made in the world in the next year, I mean, I'd say five years, maybe it's a year now, I don't even know. Taiwanese election was last Saturday. The, the decisions that are going to be made by Western powers in the next five years are going to determine the 21st century. And... The bad outcomes scale from anything to World War III to um, 
complete collapse of global trade due to maybe a, a conflict with China, which would frankly result in hyperinflation in in this country and in, in the United States. I think we vastly underestimate the fragility of uh, some of the Western economies. So it's scary. I mean, it's just, it's honestly, it's scary. I mean, maybe it's not the best career move. I don't know. We'll see. But um, uh, it's scary. And, and if people don't start figuring out what's going on, the potential for miscalculation is, is frightening, actually. It's, it's actually scary. Are you surprised at how little politicians know about this stuff? So, for instance, I mean, I saw last year, you know, everybody was bashing China. Well, maybe even the year before, really before the Russian war kicked off. People like Ian Duncan Smith were saying we need to um, decouple from China. We need to have absolutely no Chinese involvement in terms of the, the broader Western economy, you know, over the next 10, 15 years. Like you say, I mean, that would that would make the inflation that we've seen over the last 18 months, although that's now subsiding, that would look like a that would look like child's play. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the low inflation we've enjoyed since the early 1990s is in no small part because of China's integration to the global economy and cheap consumer durables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, you can actually not pay your workers that much. I mean, that's changing again in the last year or two, but broadly speaking, real wages have stagnated. You can do that because of low inflation China. Someone like Ian Duncan Smith doesn't appear to know that. I don't, he doesn't appear to know that if you do decouple from China, particularly manufactured goods, you're going to have uncontrolled, politically uncontrollable inflation in this country. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, do, like, you, do you think he knows? Or I, I mean, I don't know what Ian, Ian Duncan Smith knows or doesn't know. But I think what you're what you're what you're talking about is a, is a lot of people seem to have forgotten this. Now, this is a really strange thing. When I started my career in finance, 2014, something like that, 2015. I don't know. I can't think. 2015, maybe 2014. Um, it was just well known. Like if you said, "Oh, well, you know, eventually China and America will go to war." Anyone would have said to you, no, it can't happen. And you say, why? Because they'll dump their dollar reserves. Yeah. And it would create, it would crash the dollar. It would create a hyperinflation. And you say, yeah, okay, <laughs> that's reasonable. And then after the kind of what you say, the anti-China rhetoric started to get mainstream, basically after the Trump administration, I think that's when it started. Um, everyone just forgot this. And I was like, everyone knew this. And then as you say, everyone knew like 10 years ago or 12 years ago that what you just said, you know, globalization, it has its critics, it has its supporters, but ultimately prices and wages have been held down, there hasn't been inflation, and there's been low prices in this kind of world that we live in due to cheap Chinese goods. And anyone can see it. I mean, your laptop's probably Chinese, or your phone's probably Chinese. Like, And it's gone up the value chain. We're not yeah. just buying trinkets anymore, right? So I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, what I think is happening the more I watch it, is that the world's changing very fast. Mm. We're the incumbent power, and people are scared. And when people get scared, they forget things, and they don't think clearly. And that's what opens up the possibility for miscalculation, which is exactly what I would like to not happen. Because as I said to a friend of mine when he said, why'd you start it? He said, what was the goal? <laughs> what was the goal? And I said, I don't want to live in, I don't want to have World War Three." And I don't want to be really poor. Mm. So that, if, we can, if we can get through this without having World War III and without being really poor, that's fine with me. I mean, this is something I, I, I still find it quite remarkable that people haven't grasped. Like, we'll be talking about, we're going to talk about Israel-Gaza in a minute. Um, people saying, do this to Hamas, go to war in Iran. And I'm like, you do understand that if we go to war in Iran, we'll see a massive inflationary shock with regards to energy, 
inflation, interest rates. You, you do understand when you remortgage your house in like 2026 or whatever, it will be like an eight, nine, ten percent mortgage. Like you, you could be homeless. There are implications here, but it, it, it remains for so many people in politics and media. It's a very abstract thing. Yeah. Still, I mean, it's slowly changing because of people like yourself. Maybe some people watching of our media, but it's not that many people, is it? You know, the decision makers still feel a little bit insulated from this stuff, even despite Russia. That's what's scary. I mean, it's because we've lived through uh, non-turbulent economic times. I mean, look. It, the, a little bit of history here, right? And I'm not comparing comparing myself to a great man, but John Maynard Keynes wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1919. Uh, just very quickly, what that was about was the reparations policy of the Treaty of Versailles. The reparations were imposed on Germany. They destroyed Germany in the 1920s. That's why the Weimar hyperinflation happened. It didn't happen because the stupid Germans printed too much money. It was the Allied debts that they imposed on Germany. Keynes predicted it in 1919. Keynes was the one of the British Treasury delegates at the Treaty of Versailles negotiations. He fell out with all of his Treasury friends when he wrote that book. And he was right. Germany collapsed, and look what we got. We got Hitler and we got World War II, right? That generation understood the reality of potential economic impacts of very, very poor, um, very, very poor geopolitical decisions. The people who got us into, or them, our ancestors, into World War I didn't understand it because they lived through that placid Victorian period, idyllic period. And we're going through another phase where we've lived through a pretty placid, idyllic period. That's the scary thing. And so you're right. People aren't cognizant of this. Now, what we, have, what's, what we do have going for us is that I think our historical and economic understanding on paper should be a lot better. I think most people up until five minutes ago at least notionally knew the lessons of the economic consequences of the peace, and they knew how disruptive war and geopolitics could be to the economy and how dangerous that can be politically, socially, everything like that. But, you know, we are, we are there. We're not the generation that lived through the 1930s. Mm. And that's that's part of the problem, I think. So let's get on to some red meat. Yeah. How important is um, the Israeli war in Gaza right now? What are its global implications? <sighs> to be determined is the short answer. Um, I mean, look, who can predict anything? When, when the Israel war with Gaza started, I was watching Lebanon. Obviously, I was... I was my thinking was, what if this emerges into a, into a regional war, right? And it's still good, still good. But uh, who saw the Houthis attacking <laughs> Like, who saw that? Like, I didn't. I didn't have the force. Now, I think I was a pretty early adopter of this is important. I wrote um, a piece for The Telegraph mid-December, I think. And I was writing about it front her as, I want to say, start of December. So I think not just me, but our podcast and everything was pretty early on that. But didn't foresee it. Didn't foresee it at all. Didn't understand that this group called the Houthi rebels or Ansar Allah or whatever you want to call them had these advanced petitions that could seriously harass ships. I knew a bit about certain weaknesses of naval power and so on that's becoming increasingly uh, obvious and the change in weapons technology that maybe we can talk about. But the point is it was unpredictable. Now, so you don't want to predict the future with this stuff. Um, but, you know... There is the potential it could turn into a regional war with Iran, presumably. I mean, that's no secret, just read a paper. 
Do I think that's going to happen? No, because I think it's just borderline impossible to launch a ground war with Iran just geographically. The region's changed since 2003. Uh, there aren't many Western allies in the in the region left. Um, but this shipping thing is something else. I mean, this has completely... Look, what happened... I mean, what I wrote in the, in the article in The Telegraph in mid-December is that a massive historical shift has just t- taken place, okay? Because um, up until... December of last year, at the time of recording, that's what, like six weeks ago? Mm. Up until six weeks ago, this is not an exaggeration, up until six weeks ago, if you wanted to enact a naval blockade in human history, from the Roman times to the age of sail, right up to 1995, if you wanted to enact a naval blockade, you needed a navy, a deep sea navy, right? And in order to have a navy, the navy is the most expensive component of the army. Everyone presumably knows that. It's extremely expensive to maintain a, a navy. I think Britain probably is <laughs> expensive to maintain a navy. So you needed a massive um, GDP, a large GDP, and then you had to have the commitment to put that G- a portion of that GDP on the table to build a big navy. At that point, you get to play with the big boys and threaten or enact a naval blockade. Well, the Houthis have just enacted a naval blockade, and they've done so with cheap technology. Not low technology, cheap technology. It's not that they're using low-tech products, it's that high-tech products have become commodified and cheap. And they're able to enact a naval blockade. That's a first in human history. That's never, ever, ever been able to be done before. And the consequences of it are absolutely enormous. I think much broader, that technological shift, that proof, is much, much bigger in a sense than anything that will actually happen in the Middle East. Mm, we'll get to that. It does feel intuitively to me like um, cheap drones, cheap loitering munitions, cheap short-range missiles, it does feel almost like explosives or firearms. You know, the arrival mm-hmm. of this is a Absolutely. disruptive technology. Absolutely. And, and what that does to incumbent organizations, incumbent interests. Um, like you say, we weren't even thinking in these terms six weeks ago, but Not see, seeing it seeing it in the flesh is 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 really striking. On this point of Iran as well, I mean, you, you you don't think a war with Iran is likely. And I think maybe it was your formulation or it was somebody else. We're not necessarily seeing a regional war, but we're seeing a region at war. And that's a, that's a fair assessment. And you guys on your podcast, again, I think it's a must-listen show personally. You've talked about all the attacks on uh, US service personnel in Iraq, more than 100 since October. Obviously, more than th- it was 36 before this all kicked off um, with regards to Houthis in the Red Sea. You had the Iranian seize a vessel on the Strait of Hormuz um, last week. So clearly something is happening in the, in the region more broadly. You know, you've got both sides of the Arabian Peninsula. You've got Syria. You've got Lebanon. Um, something quite significant is happening. Iraq. That looks like a region at war. So how do things escalate? If, if, if America isn't going to declare war on Iran, which obviously I agree with you, it seems incredibly unlikely, not least because it's surrounded by mountains and it's enormous, it's three times the size of Iraq. And there's no launching point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, this is another thing. Like, I, I, t- I talk to people, Iran is so big, it's quite hard to bomb its major cities. Like if you're going to use a, like a, a jet, it's quite hard. Many problems. Let's just put it but that yeah, way. But yeah, there's some sort of magical thinking going on. Like it's it, Okay, here's a question for you. If there was a war between the US and Iran, would that be, in terms of a hot war, the strongest adversary the US has faced since the Third Reich? I'm just trying to think in terms of its sort of political economy, its steel production, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite, it's a medium power. I mean, you're saying if, if America literally went to war yeah. like, they, like they did with Iraq, maybe Korea, maybe Korea? 
maybe. Yeah. I mean, it would be a it's significant. It would be a bit. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be Baghdad two thousand three. No. I, but everyone knows that at this stage, I think. Except I John Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> Except John Bolton. <laughs> it's his job not to understand that. But we're talking about we're talking about the Houthis. Um, we were talking about this before before you um, arrived. To what extent is this Houthi blockade? To what extent is it about um, political sympathies with what's going on in Gaza uh, versus flexing one's muscles, basically trying to carve out um, a neighbourhood for themselves, showing that look we're a regional we're a regional power now. If you're if you're a cynic, you'd say, well, of course they're saying that, but for reasons of rail politic, it's actually about getting leverage for them. They probably want to be recognised as the legitimate government of Yemen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your read on it? It's probably both. I mean, why can't it be both? Um, I definitely think that you know um, the Houthis and Hezbollah and all that. It's part of a regional strategy by Iran. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. Um, and these are different parts of a regional strategy. I don't, I don't, look, I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone knows, but I doubt that Iran totally controlled the Houthis or totally controlled Hezbollah or anybody else. But they say they're our allies and they're kind of using them as proxies in a sense. I mean, mm. that's pretty, it's pretty clear. And there does seem to be a coherent strategy to this whole thing. Um, so it's probably a bit of everything. I, I think that the, the polls in the region you know, we talk about multipolarity, but you can even go down to a regional level and talk about polls. The polls in the region have changed massively because of the, the changed relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, which people didn't really pay attention to at the time when it happened. We did because I was like, wow, that's a big deal. And then Saudi Arabia and Iran joined the BRICS together, along with Egypt, by the way, which the Suez Canal is based in, and Ethiopia, which is on the other side of the sea from Yemen. Starting to see a pattern. Um, so explain the significance of that, please. Well, we don't know. Because very few people, but, very but few seems, people are talking about uh, those kinds uh, no of No one's talking about it. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, like, it, it, I'm not saying I have the answers to this, but I am saying that a couple of powers joined the BRICS in August. Iran, Saudi Arabia, previously enemies, were basically fighting a proxy war in Yemen, right? Yemen. The, it's, like, it's like France and England in the 14th century or something. Like, they couldn't hate each other more, you know? It was pretty strange. Yeah. It was pretty unusual. And then, um, and then the other members of the BRICS included Ethiopia. Why? I mean, it's a really poor country. It's the second most populous country in Africa after Nigeria. And I don't mean to disparage Ethiopia, but it's a poor country. And Egypt, okay, well, presumably Suez Canal. I mean, everyone thinks Egypt, everyone thinks Suez Canal. I, again, I'm not discounting, it's also a large country. Um, but why Ethiopia? And then you see like, oh wait, <laughs> all this stuff's going on around the Red Sea and the Red Sea's a key global shipping choke point. Well, we're waking up pretty quick to what that means, right? I mean, that's all I know, but there seems to be a pattern there. You, you have some quite large claims in all of these articles you write about the return of inflation for precisely this reason about now the Red Sea being treated as this strategic choke point. Whether you think that's just the Houthis or the Houthis and the Iranians or whatever, a broader sort of regional conspiracy or whatever, is inflation coming back? Because obviously it's been going down really for what, six, eight months, pretty quickly actually, at a clip in this country certainly. Um, so is it going to come back just in time for the next general election? I don't see how it can't. I mean, at the time of recording... Shipping container prices are spiraling, right? You've probably go go on my Twitter. I post this stuff all the time. I I am your conduit to boring Wall Street data Twitter. 
the shipping container prices are spiraling. Now, people say, oh, well, it's just a few quid added on to shipping. No, no, no. They, that's just a signal. That's just a market signal. What that signals is all the ships, not all, but most ships that are, were headed to the Red Sea through the Suez Canal, through this little strait down by Yemen that the Houthis are harassing, up through the Red Sea and then through the Suez Canal and then you, you're into the Mediterranean. All the, Not all those ships, a lot of those ships have to go now around, the, around Africa, around South Africa, so they go right down. And this is the old trade route before we, we dug the Suez Canal. And what that does is it adds 40% uh, onto the journey. And you go, oh, well, it's a longer journey. Well, that's not really how logistics works. Adding 40% onto the journey diminishes your shipping fleet by 40%. It's exactly equivalent, right? And so we've diminished trade that used to go via the Red Sea to Europe and America, not so much America, but we can talk about that, um, by about 40%. How can that not have impacts? In fact, just last week, at the end of last week, Tesla and Volvo in Europe said we're halting production. Because they know they called up their suppliers and they said, sorry, guys, it's going to be an extra 10 days. And you go, oh, it's only an extra 10 days. No, that's not how the economy works. When you hear an extra 10 days, think less stuff. That's what it means. So I don't see any way that inflation doesn't come back. But um, but the, everyone's in denial about it. Now, why is everyone in denial about it? I mean, I've been pretty vocal about it on Twitter. I might as well say it because everyone's terrified of the American election, right? If inflation comes back... Biden's done. <laughs> like, it's very hard to see how Biden wins the election. And so it's become a hot-button political issue. But I really, really doubt um, people continue to ignore it. I'm open to an argument about why inflation won't come back. But, I mean, we've, we've, we've seen this movie before, right? During the lockdowns, we mm -hmm. saw this bunging up of global supply chains, and we saw what happened. We, we got inflation, right? Well, you, you, you often on your Twitter, and you are great to follow on this stuff, you're talking about you know, energy futures and whatnot, and you're saying they're heading in the right dire wrong direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose one counter-argument is that U.S. fracking, you know, output in the U.S. is meant to go up this year, it's meant to go up next year, had a good year last year. I, I guess that's one counter-argument. Do you buy that? or Well, well you're, mixing, you're mixing the two things. The, the claim on the inflationary claim isn't so much that energy prices will go up. I'm just the, talking about the energy, though. Because uh, obviously okay. a, lot of, a lot of this stuff is about tradable oil going through the Red Sea. And... Well, no. I mean, a lot of it's Chinese container ships. Uh. So those parts that have to go to Tesla and Volvo, they're not lacking oil. They're lacking the components that yeah, they need yeah, that are yeah. traveling. Like, we have a very, things up, so do you see what I mean? Like no. the, the, that, that in, it, in itself will create inflation. Now, how much inflation? Well, that's another question. If, if, it's, if it's that without the energy price component, then okay, maybe it'll be less. But it, even if, if inflation just starts going in the other direction, bad news, central banks are going to have to react and stuff. In terms of the energy market, look, the oil market seems to me to be in a, it's weird. It's it's been. I've been saying for ages that the oil market's been, been reacting kind of weird. And people at first were like, "Oh, what did you short oil and lose?" And I was like, okay, "Whatever." Or long oil. Sorry, go long oil yeah. and lose. This is what people on financial Twitter go. You've always got a nefarious motive. Um, but now I think people are seeing like um, like oil markets are supposed to respond to tension in the Middle East. But look, it doesn't matter. The the look at the uh, yesterday or today this morning, Qatar said we're ceasing LNG shipments through uh, the Red Sea. And since the Ukraine war, as everybody probably knows, we buy LNG now, American LNG and- Liquid Qatar, natural gas, yeah. Liquid natural gas. And we buy them in tankers that look like, um, that look like uh, the O2 here. <laughs> they mm. look like they um, uh, Well, LNG shipments are going to be last now. 
So how does that not impact, you know, gas prices? This is a key point about um, about the whole Farago in the Red Sea, because, you know, you go on the TV or you, you, if you go on TV or go on TV, people say, the international community is, you know, condemning the Yemenis and their, you know, the Operation Prosperity Guardian or whatever it's called. And I'm thinking, well, the Saudis have called for, um, what's the word? Caution. It's, it's a synonym for caution. Uh, you don't have the, the Qataris. You don't have the Emiratis. Like, this is the neighborhood, guys. I, I, I suspect they have a good idea about what the right course of action is. Um, the Spanish, the Italians, the French. When you have the Brits and the Americans and then the Germans, probably for slightly different reasons, being rather gung-ho with the whole thing. And it's like nobody stops to ask, well, why don't the Saudis think this is a good idea? I think people probably are starting to ask that. <laughs> Not in the media. I, well, I don't know. Not I mean, in the media, but I mean, people, media. people must be wondering, right? So the the just to summarize quickly, after the American and British strikes in Yemen last week on Thursday night, I think it was, the Saudis came out the next day and said, we condemn the strikes. Mm. Now, as you say, some of their shipping's being impacted. So they obviously think that there's bigger things on the table than just the economy or shipping or whatever here. Yeah, I think people are probably going to have to, you know, eventually deal with that, come to terms with it. I think the Red Sea is going to be closed for a while. I think that's, and that's what Maersk, the Danish shipping giant and stuff is saying. You see, there's a real disconnect, remember, between um, what people are talking about in the media even while people are talking about financial markets, the financial markets have been slow to pick up on this, but I think they're starting to pick up on that. But you don't get that kind of information disconnect if you're if you're running a shipping company or if you're even Elon Musk and you're running Tesla mm. because you literally get a call up and it's like, yeah, the parts are going to be delayed by 10 days. So that's kind of how, like having worked in finance and been around corporates and stuff like that, that's how information actually filters through the system, you know. Mm. And you can't, like Elon Musk, for example, is massively influential. So I'd expect that if the delays get any worse, you'll start seeing him tweet about it or something. So you can't, you can't actually, you can't actually <laughs> ignore this. on the this. toilet, the global energy <laughs> prices, you like, know. Like, where are my Tesla parts? Yeah, where yeah. are my Tesla parts? <laughs> yeah, like shit emoji. <laughs> Funny world we live in. Um so what you're saying is that, you know, even just a slight uptick inflation in inflation has big implications for the US election later this year. You wrote an article, and you sort of, sort of hinted at it just there, that there were signals coming out late last year from the US Federal Reserve that, oh, well, well actually, interest rates can go down next year. Yeah. And you think that's kind of like an establishment thing well, to, I, prime, I, to prime the American electorate to vote a certain way? Not, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it that nefarious. I mean, look, the the Federal Reserve prior to December, whenever the last FOMC meeting was, um, were signaling. Uh, if you follow, the, even if you didn't follow the financial press, you might have heard the term "higher for longer." That was the phrase, and you know it was pretty clear signaling. It was like we want to be absolutely sure that the inflation is stamped out, so we're going to keep interest rates up. Well, you know. Before that FOMC meeting, everyone was like, okay, they're going to keep it up because the data hasn't changed substantially. The data did not change, like, substantially. And um, and then they signaled that they were going to ease. Um, I'll just point out that the week before they signaled that, the Wall Street Journal ran a poll that showed Biden losing based on the economy. Hmm. I'm not saying, like, I'm just saying that all the FOMC guys probably read that and were like, we really don't like Trump. Um, and it might have influenced their thinking a bit, but um, I don't think they're going to be able to avoid 
this supply chain issue? Because if they they got the last one wrong, does ever, anyone remember like team transitory inflation? I don't know how close people follow this, but everybody was saying inflation's going to be transitory, et cetera, et cetera. They got it wrong. Mm. That was a big flub. Now, I'm, I wrote a Money Week article saying there was going to be inflation. So I'm sort of proud of that. But um, they got that wrong. Well, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Mm. If they get this one wrong and inflation ticks up, and I can give you a date on inflation, it'll probably be May or June, or we'll start to see it tick up. Um, because Why May or June? Well, it's just a correlation. You can you can run okay. a correlation based on the shipping container rates. I didn't even run it. There's a, a big macro account on Twitter, um, uh, Andre Steno Larsen, I think he's a Swedish guy. Uh, he ran the correlation, so I think that's a pretty good, pretty good proxy. We'll probably see it drip in about then. Terrible timing for the U.S. election, by the way. So I, I just don't, I don't think, um, I don't think the Fed can can destroy their credibility by by ignoring this. But Andrew Bailey was out today saying smooth sailing. So Governor of the Bank of England, Governor of the Bank of England was out today saying smooth sailing. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> So you think these guys could destroy their credibility in the next sort of six to twelve months? If they miss another inflation, though, I mean. But what does that mean? Because it's you're a bit like me in that you're prone to saying this is the end of this, this is this, this is that. These guys are collapsing. This is a, which is true, but then the, the, there's a limited set of like alternative possibilities, which is okay. The Federal Reserve is discredited. There's still only one Federal Reserve. Like, what does that mean? Though I know, basically, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, you're right. It's not like, oh, the Federal Reserve's now discredited. Yeah. Um, There's a market alternative. We now trust these guys. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So, um, well, okay. So the two possibilities are that it's not so much that the Fed discredits itself, but that the current people at the Fed discredit themselves, in which case, you know, you can imagine reappointments, something like that. And and the other thing, remember, is that all these guys are PhD economists, right? And uh, I I can tell you from hard-won experience that economists have big egos. They don't like getting things wrong. They don't like being embarrassed. And they don't like having headlines written about them saying these guys are a bunch of idiots. So there's that. But what you speak to, which is a distinct possibility, is just discrediting an institution in the public eyes, and then it just keeps rolling on. Well, that's scary. I mean, that kind of thing is not good for a society. And we're going through all these enormous changes, which are going to be extremely difficult. Um, we don't want that. Well, I don't want that. Um, so I think they should be very cautious. But yes, of course, we could have a, a cynical society that is that just starts to ignore major malfunctions. But I mean, that's kind of like Brezhnev era stuff. It could, but it could happen. <laughs> and people just stop trusting. But not even just like okay, Joe Bloggs doesn't trust the institutions. So what? But you know, senior decision makers stop believing the institutions. That matter. By the, I mean, just to take the Soviet Union example, it's not a. I don't want to equate the two things, but um, you know, in the 1970s, the jokes were good, is my understanding. Like there were some really good Soviet jokes about politicians. By the 1980s, the leadership class, including Gorbachev and so on, they didn't believe in the system. Like that's where you can go with that, and we know what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. So you just you you want to be pretty careful about destroying the credibility of your institutions, and although. I'd be quite critical of many institutions in uh, the West and the financial system and so on. I have my criticisms. I don't think they're so far gone that they have to be, you know, completely destroyed in terms of their credibility now. So it's up to the people who are making the decisions. Do they want to 
um, sweep things under the rug, pretend this isn't happening because the next election cycle and so on. It's up to them. It's up to them if they the, want to do there's that. There's a lot of cope in the West, isn't there? Like, and you expect cope from all sorts of places. But the whole point, and Noam Chomsky said this, you know, famously about, you know, if you want good information, you should read the financial press because you need, you know, good information to make good decisions. Um, look at China. You know, China hitting 5% growth this year. Um, and people might say, well, the, the, the books are cooked. Well, this is when CNN or the FT will refer to 5% growth. And they say it's bad. And you think, hold on, the labor market shrinking because of the one-child policy. W when did it become bad for your economy to grow by 5% and your labor market to basically stay the same? Um, when did that become a bad thing? Or, you know, you produce a car manufacturer, which is the world's number one EV producer, or Huawei has the best, you know, revenues in three years. All of a sudden, these are apparently indicators that China's really struggling. And I don't quite understand where, when did that when did that become a thing? Well, the thing is actually with China, it's really easy to judge the growth numbers because they set a growth target. <laughs> you know, we don't set growth targets uh, really. Um, we say low inflation and high employment. Um, they set a growth target of five percent, and they're hitting their growth target. That's not according to the Chinese. That's according to the IMF. Yeah. By the way, the IMF. I know I'm on a I'm left of center podcast, and I have my I actually agree with many leftist criticisms of the IMF. So we don't want to lord it too much. The IMF has been great in the past couple of years. It's been very level headed. It's been run by Christine Lagarde. She's been out ahead of a bunch of these topics. So I would um I know the institutional problems with the IMF. I'm not a fan of its lending programs and austerity programs, but um we have to give credit where credit is due. The IMF has been an honest institution throughout all this. But you're right, with this. China's sinking into oblivion while the IMF is like, actually, they're going to hit 5.2%. And it's like, what is the point of all this? And then, and then I guess where the rubber meets the road is that the financial press has scared the pants off foreign investors. And so foreign uh, investment into the country is pulled back. Newsflash, guys, foreign, foreign investment into China is tiny. It's all domestic investment. And you're just losing, it's, it's just investors losing out on, on good opportunities in China. And I don't think it really has an angle. Look, that was all part, I think, that was all part of the, the you know, it's the Hegel, the Geist, you know, that was all part of the kind of spirit of this like decoupling, de-risking, all that. But that stuff, like it started with decoupling, then everyone was like, all right, that's not going to work because it's crazy. Then it's de-risking and no one knows what it means. I just think it, I think that was just a non-starter. I was actually involved in the initial uh, debates in DC while I was still working in finance through the Journal of American Affairs about industrial policy and so on. I, I'm a proponent of industrial policy. And there was always kind of a, uh, the protectionists and the industrial policy. And I'm not against, I'm not a free trader. I'm really not. Um, but, you know, you've built up all these dependencies on a rival economy, massive dependencies, and you go, you know what? <laughs> I think we're just going to stop that. And it's like, yeah, okay, see what happens. Like, may, it's going to take you years to wean yourself off the Chinese economy. It took 30 years to get where we are today. It'll take another 30 to wean yourself off. And you have to get all the policy right. That's hard. So I think, um, I think, I think Western elites have been panicked by the rise of China, especially in America, not so much in Europe. They've been panicked by the rise of China, and they're looking for a, a quick, Quick fix, easy solution. And I think we're, we're learning very quickly. And I think that one of the big signals here was Joe Biden's meeting with Xi Jinping in San Francisco late last year. I think we're learning very quickly that um, 
those policies are a non-starter. And if we want to talk about rebalancing our economies, which we should, um, you're going to have to talk about a long-term 10, 20, 30-year vision. And you're going to have to put real effort in. You can't ban your way to prosperity, right? You just can't. Ask North Korea. You can't ban yourself to prosperity. You have to put the work in. And um, I suppose Joe, Joe Biden would say, well, look, on, on the one hand, we've got these, you know, we're trying to starve China of microprocessors, not working, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we've also got the CHIPS Act in so much as we're trying to guarantee supply chains, if not in the US, then in, amongst the US allies. You don't think that's... My friend worked on the CHIPS Act. Uh-huh. I know the behind the scenes of the CHIPS Act. Everything in DC, this is not widely understood outside, everything in DC is lobbying. That I know that'll be like, oh, people on the left are always saying money crops politics and so on. Like, okay, you don't know how right you are in this instance. Uh, just to give you context, this isn't some, like, Britain's not like this. Britain, there's lobbying, sure, there's a bit of lobbying, but it's not like in America. Everything is done through lobbying in America, everything. And the CHIPS Act, basically, I'll tell people that, Go and read the article on it. American Affairs, Julius Krein, the editor of American Affairs. It's called Where the Chips Fell. Brilliant piece of political economy. Goes right into detail of why the Chips Act turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. And the short answer is lobbying. You can't, like, China sets, okay, take the example of the chips in China, right? So China, the Chinese response to the microprocessor ban, the initial microprocessor ban was under Trump. And it was targeted. They said it was for national security, blah, blah, blah. But the real reason was they didn't want them in the next generation iPhone, um, not iPhone, uh, smartphone market, right? And other, you know, tablets and all the all the gadgetry that we use all day and plug ourselves into the matrix too. Um, they didn't they didn't want them doing that. And they, they weren't using, by the way, American chips. These are like South Korean and European chips. The Americans don't make great microprocessors at the moment. Um, I think they make some graphics cards, but not much else. And so, um, and what the Chinese did in response to that was they said, okay, we're going to set up a big program. And they called it the Big Fund in China, very Chinese, <laughs> but the Big Fund, straight to the point. <laughs> and they set up the Big Fund and the Big Fund poured money into the sector. And it was a focused industrial policy with a specific goal and a lot of money behind it. And that's how the Chinese roll. In America, if you want to do the equivalent, you have to go and get the lobbyist in the in the semiconductor factory and then he has a he has a spat with the other semiconductor semiconductor guy and you have to get them together and maybe you try and get them to make up and and then you've got other lobby groups come in so the the green energy guys come in and they go no we kind of want some of that money and they're more politically popular it's very very i mean dc is a very transactional place in that regard and it's kind of, I find it kind of ironic that in Europe, you tend to like when the Inflation Reduction Act w was put forward, which is sort of where the CHIPS Act was embedded, that was Biden's big spending program. In Europe, they were like, oh my God, they're going to do this big industrial policy. And I was like, yeah, that, you don't want to see how that sausage is made. <laughs> I know a bit about that. You don't want to see how that sausage is made. So that's the issue. Um, China can do this stuff in a coordinated way because it's a centralized uh, system. It's investment is centralized. It's, it's consumer stuff isn't centralized. And we have a very hard time doing that, especially in DC and Europe tend to follow DC on that. So I, I look, I, I'm again, very in favor of industrial policy. In theory, the CHIPS Act was probably the right way to go rather than this crazy, like pull up the drawbridges, even though we owe them the money, which we do. 
um, much more sensible. But I just, from a very political economy point of view, I think we'll find it very hard to get from here to there. I'm not saying it's impossible and we need to try, but that's the reality. Again, go check out that article, Where the Chips Fell in, in American Affairs, if you want to actually understand how this works in DC. You sound like an admirer of the Chinese model. Um, and it's just interesting because there's a, there's a TED Talk by a guy called Eric Lee. Have you seen this? No, but I think I know who you are. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. And he talks about he talks about the Chinese Communist Party as a technocratic organization. And I'm sure it I'm, I'm sure it doesn't entirely resemble the, you know, his 20-minute talk, but it sounds so much more intelligent and thoughtful than any Western political party um, in terms of how it executes on governance. Okay. I'm not talking about elections and all that stuff, but how you make decisions, you know, it's it's a hybrid of civil service and political organization. He makes elsewhere a really interesting point. He says, look, China is a market society, but we're not a capitalist society in the same way that you guys are, in so much as decision-making is political and power, uh, the, the, the primary power is political executive power. In the West, your problem, it's kind of quasi-Marxist interpretation of things, predictably, in the West, Capital has primacy. The interests of capital are what dictate political decisions. Whereas in China, political decisions are what dictate capital. And, you know, obviously I, I think that as somebody on the left, but it was so clearly put as well as saying, well, look, we, we embrace markets. We have firms. We have the price system. Um, and it does feel to me like for us, there's a lot to learn there. There's something to grab onto. Um, I'd give you this overview on China. First of all, now it's uncool to say anything positive about China. I remember back in those foggy days of a few years ago during the lockdown and everyone was praising this system. And I actually didn't like it very much because I'm kind of a government get out of my life kind of guy. Um, uh, okay, so what happened to that? <laughs> First of all, it's kind of weird. Um, in terms of the actual system itself, I'll be frank, I wouldn't really want to live in China. I, I mean, it's it, it's not a very free society. I mean, it, look, the... the but would so, you want this country's industrial policy to look more well, like China? Let's get back. To, let's get to that, okay? Yeah. So, but, you know, I want to be quite frank on this. Okay. Um, I don't think I'd like to live in China. I, I have friends who visited there recently. It's not some crazy totalitarian place. There's massive exaggerations. It's not, um, you know, it's not what some people say it is. But, you know, it's not here. And you don't have as much freedom as you do in the West. Um, but let me put it this way. China's learned a lot from the West in the past 30 years, okay? And they've learned it directly. They send their students here and they get economics degrees here and they get MBAs here and they get science degrees here. And the Chinese have learned a lot from us in the past 30 years. Do we currently have more to teach China than China have to teach us? No. China has more to teach us than we have to teach them now. They've sucked the lemon dry over here. And they've seen the good parts and the bad parts. And they've taken, well, leave aside their the, the questions of personal liberty and so on. They've taken, from a purely economic point of view, they've taken the good parts and applied them. And they've left the bad parts here. Um, look, it's just as simple as this. If we have massive trade deficits in the West, um, our economies are very imbalanced. We can talk about this, income inequality, everything. It's all tied together. If we want to get back on track, we definitely need to reindustrialize. Nobody disagrees with this anymore. Now it's just, I would say, the industrial policy people versus the protectionist people. And I'm on the industrial policy side. I think the protectionist stuff is suicide. I mean, it can be applied neatly 
to certain, I mean, like if they want to get steel production a bit better in the US, maybe there's a case for tariffs. I'm not totally against it. But, you know, it'll have to be pragmatic. It can't be an all-encompassing solution. Um, so look, what what is the alternative? We'll need some way of government, uh, as I mean, to paraphrase what you're saying, allocating capital. We, we need to do, that. and that, and we're already we're already talking about how to do that. The problem is that the mechanism now, as you say, is 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 um, lobbying led in DC, um, and then we just in Europe we just copy what they do. Um, yeah, we need some sort of a a, a better kind of planning system it, it, and I'm, I'm not advocating that the state should go out and build semiconductors I don't think they do it very well and the Chinese don't do that either as I said they set up set up the big fund and then they plow money into these into these basically private firms that are, are for profit and stuff so I, I mean we can do it but it's it's very alien to our nature I think in the West definitely America probably Britain Europe would be more used to this the French used to have French, this system, yeah. the de regime system under Charles de Gaulle. Um, Germany, they have the KFW bank. Um, they'd be a bit more familiar with this. But Europe's just gone down its own rabbit hole. That's a whole other story. But We'll get to Europe in a minute. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think like I think we have something to learn from China. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair to say. And anyone who dismisses that at this stage or calls you China, you know, you're pro-China. I get this stuff all the time. I'm like, I live here. I'm not going to move to China. Like, can we just be real about this? Mm. Stop the friend enemy, Carl Schmidt stuff. Like, you know, that's a whole other conversation. I do think that like social media brain rot has it's a genuine threat to Western policymakers, quote unquote intellectuals, thinkers, pundits. It's a genuine barrier to them actually addressing major problems. Hundred percent. Because like they're literally all they do, and look, I try and cancel or ratio cancel. I try and ratio people or whatever, but like. All they care about is ratios, gotchas. This includes like members of parliament and stuff. And you just think, we're so screwed. Your time is more valuable than this, surely. I know, it's really bad. And the China thing, just like if you say, for example, hey, the Chinese investment model, we have something to learn from. Oh, you're pro-China. What? I can't stop. I've literally never been there. I can't, I've never, I don't, never been to China. I, I, know, I know the word like ni hao. That's about it. How can I be pro-China? I've literally no idea about the country. I have never been to China. I, I don't have any intention of visiting China. I might go. It'd be an interesting thing to see. But I'm not remotely drawn to China. You know, the local, the, the, um, in Xi'an, the local party wants to talk about my book. Then COVID happened. That would have been fun. Well, I'll see you in Beijing. <laughs> um, let's stick with China for a minute before going to uh, Europe. What do you think of Peter Zahan? I have a lot of thoughts on Peter Zahan. What specifically? Just so, so, you know, he's a geopolitics guy, guru. He's incredibly confident in everything he says. Um, and he's one of these people who's like, China is headed for collapse. Okay, specifically on the China collapse thing. Then. Yeah. I think Peter Zahan draws on Michael Pettis. Are you, are you familiar with Michael Pettis? The name's familiar, but... Michael Pettis is an American economist at uh, Peking University, I think it's called, in China. I think it's in China. Why is it called Peking University style? Not not familiar to me. Uh, not clear to me. They, they must be, I thought that would annoy them. But um, he's at the university there. He's been there for a very long time. He's a very, very interesting writer. And he's, look, Peter Zehan, I don't think he's very high level intellectually, frankly. And we can talk about that more if you want. But he's drawing on Michael Pettis, who is a pretty serious economist. And Michael Pettis has been around for years saying China's going to collapse. And uh, and his reasoning kind of prima facie makes sense, you know. 
he's drawing an analogy. This is what he, he does. Because I used to be convinced of this when I started working in finance, mid-2010s. Um, he said, he basically said, look what happened to us in 2008, 2009, right? Massive buildup of private debt. Remember, we all remember. We're all old enough, aren't we? Massive buildup of private debt. Whole thing collapses when interest rates go up. Big financial crisis. Banks fail, et cetera, et cetera. And Michael Pettis just points to the private debt load in China and goes, well, obviously it's going to happen here, right? And I believe that. And I can tell kind of a personal story, not personal, personal, because that's boring, but a story from my professional career. We were invested in Chinese stocks pretty heavily or Chinese adjacent stocks. And me and my boss were like, you read Pettis, right? Yeah. So is there going to be a crash? And I was like, well, I can't see why there isn't. The logic makes sense. It's the same dynamics we saw here. And um, and then the 2015, the uh, Chinese housing market took a dive. And a pretty big dive, I think 10% or something. It's the Evergrande thing, right? That's when Evergrande started. Yeah. 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 And, um, and I thought, okay, this is it. Because just really briefly, housing markets aren't like stock markets. Stock markets are up one day, down the other. The short-term volatility, if you want to call it, that tells you nothing about the future direction of the price. That's the technical way of putting it. In a housing market, the the trajectory, the growth rate, does tell you something about the price. It's like a, um, it's like waves, you know. So if you go and you tilt, it's very unusual that a housing market recovers. So when you start to see a housing market fall, it usually falls either really hard, like Ireland when I was growing up, or you know, not great, like in Britain after 2008, I think it went down to 15% or something. But, you know, a substantial fall. And enough to shake the banks, as we know. So I thought, you know, well, this is it. This is it. You know, the 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 prices, the Chinese house prices were down for six, eight months, something like that. And, um, and then lo and behold, they went back up. And there was no crisis. And I said, well... What happened there? So that was when we studied, we spent six months studying the Chinese economy. And I learned two things, two really important things. I learned a lot more than that, but there are two points that stand out. The first point is that investment is controlled in China through various methods. In in Western capitalist economies, we don't control, the government doesn't control investment. The government can engage in public investment, but it makes up a smaller amount of the economy, so it doesn't make that much difference. China, there are levers, various levers, to control everything from housing market construction investment to the investment of um, state-owned enterprise firms. Um, And they can even juice the private sector a little bit by jiggling with it. So they have control over their investment, effective control. Not total control, but effective control. So if they see the economy start to wobble, they can just turn on the taps. Now that can, the critics say, oh, well, that's building roads to nowhere. Okay, but still building roads. Like, you know, until they run out of space, they can keep doing it. Um, We can talk about whether this is a wise strategy. That's a separate question. But if we're talking purely about collapse, they can reverse that. The second thing is that they seem to be able to also control housing prices. I don't fully understand how they have so, so much control over housing prices. But they've had these dips now periodically. And sorry, there's a third component. The third component is, if you look at what happened in China in the late 1990s, so the 90s are a really widely not looked at period in Chinese development. The, the, the 90s are what kind of prepare the way for the big takeoff of China in the 2000s. And basically, they're doing this insane rush for growth investment. And at this point, probably if, if we're, we're relatively similar ages, you'll remember 
Chinese stuff in the late 90s is like junk, right? It's like pen shop, dollar store. Well, I remember being even younger, um, like plastic soldiers, do you remember? Like That's toy sweet. plastic soldiers, like, love it. Or these like really bad video games. Mm. And it's like, no, I want a Game Boy, not this piece of junk, you know, that cost a fiver or something. Probably three quid back in there. And um, so they were building that stuff for export. And then domestically, they were also trying to, they were selling that and stuff. And what happened was the, the 1990s were a very high inflation period for China. And they engaged in all this fixed investment. And then loads of the investment went bad in the late 1990s. And it was, it was actually the Pettus moment or the Zeihan moment, whatever you want to think of it as. And what did they do? They just took all the debt off the balance sheets of the banks and they wrapped it up in a burlap sack and threw it down into a pit. And they said, we're never talking about that again. But who are those debts to? Who are the liabilities to? The, they would have been the, the companies that both state-owned companies and also probably some private companies that were taking bank loans out to prop up unsustainable business models. And they took the debt and they put it in the dungeon and no one talks about it. They, they use things called asset management companies, AMCs, mm. Just fake, not fake, but like just financial vehicles that were set up to absorb this debt. Is that kind of like what we did with RBS? It's the same. It's the the same, but they did it in, (laughs) we did it like crisis management. Right. So everything, it took the room to start burning down and then we did it. Uh, The Chinese, not so much. Now, we can talk more broadly about that because there's there's issues with that, that um, China has because that imposes a severe lack of market discipline. And China's ready, uh, remedied that with their anti-corruption campaigns and so on. So, Interesting. Uh, it's a different... And that's where I think there's questions whether we should follow China in that regard. We, in my opinion, we probably shouldn't because it's a completely different type of society. But um, that's basically how they do it. So no, I, I do not think that China will collapse. It may build a bunch of roads to nowhere, but I don't think it'll collapse. I mean, per capita, it's obviously not going to become as wealthy as the United States or even Europe, obviously. It might. Well, in our lifetime, you think? Yeah, maybe. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. Is Western Europe? No. Look at the South Korean model. South Korea was dirt poor. So was Japan. Yeah, but there's one. There's 1.3 billion of them. I mean, that's hard, isn't it? And you've got a shrinking labor market, I suppose. So you think, they could, you think that China GDP per head could be the same as the UK in 30 years' time, say? I, I, I tweeted something about four months ago that the top 10 uh, universities, research universities in the world, publishing in hard science journals, not social science, eight out of 10 are in China. Wow. And MIT, and if you've ever met people from MIT, they're smart people at MIT. Some of the other universities have gone downhill a bit. MIT is still pretty good. I think it was number six. What was the other one? Do you remember? Cambridge or? It could have been actually. No, there were no British universities. I think it might have been um, Stanford or Harvard or something. No, it wasn't Harvard. I can't remember. Look it up. It's on my Twitter. But MIT was there, but MIT was not even top five. Maybe it was number five, but yeah. And the, the, the top five, I'd never heard of these universities. But they're the ones pumping out the actual research. So published papers yeah. in peer-reviewed scientific journals. And we, you know, I'm not a fan of peer review in human yeah. science. I've done peer review. It's a bit of a mess. But peer review in physics or electrical engineering, yeah, it's fine, you know? So, I mean, that's the reality. So, ultimately, it's that sort of thing that drives wealth, right? In the long term, at least. Now, of course, there are demographic problems, and we can talk about that if you want. We have them, too. Um, but I don't see any reason why they why they couldn't converge. It'll take a while, a couple of decades probably, but it could be in our lifetime. 
I mean, a lot of Europeans, I don't think, have any idea about what's happening. I mean, even just three or four years ago, I would talk about, look, in the next decade, two decades, we're looking at the prospect for the first time in 400 years of really, you know, technological supremacy going from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, the US still is incredibly innovative. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But Europe's side of the bargain is clearly in decline. There are some very successful European companies, very innovative, for instance, you know, these lithography businesses that one has been based in the Netherlands that, you know, has been central in sort of trying to stop China having these good microprocessors. So I'm not suggesting there's no good companies in Europe, but it does feel like Europeans don't really grasp what's going on here. You know, you've got Chinese graduates being sent towards things like quantum computing, computing synthetic biology, um, you know, material science. Meanwhile, our graduates are like, okay, um, go work for an NGO. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. Go work in a pub for three years and find your, you know, your your thing, which I, I did. It's called a chakra. Yeah. <laughs> go find your, you know, your guiding energy. Look, I, I did that. I, I did. I worked for a year. Uh, I did a master's degree, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying this to somebody, by the way. Yeah, I did it too, by the way. Yeah, I had a, I had a BA. Okay, I had a BA. I have an MSc, but I have a BA. I'm not trying to slag off people who study oh, no. humanities, but the point is, glasshouse. Labor is a factor of production, and the Chinese are pushing that into all these really high-value, highly innovative areas, which are, they're going to basically craft the second half of the 21st century. We're not doing that in Europe. And it doesn't, well, particularly in Britain, it doesn't feel like Europeans really grasp what's going on. Well, the issue is that it's starting to show through the cracks now because you're not, it's not semiconductors and so on to focus on. Now, it's very interesting that a semiconductor ban on China only lasted three to four years until they were able to not fully catch up, but catch up enough mm. to re release this Mate 50 phone, which by all accounts is pretty good. A little overpriced, actually, but um, for the for the exotic value of being the <laughs> first fully Chinese phone, maybe, maybe there'll be resale value of that in the future, I don't know. But um, that's not where to look. Look, the fact that they can catch up so fast is very indicative of what's going on in China. The real place to look is weapons technology. And the fact of the matter is that the West has fallen behind completely in weapons technology, not just to China, but to Russia. We don't have hypersonic missiles. We don't possess them. Not Now, we do have some hypersonic missiles, the ones that go out of Earth's atmosphere and back in, but we do not have hypersonic cruise missiles. Um, China and Russia do. Now, China lag in other regards. They don't have uh, nuclear submarines. Um, they haven't focused on them. They've, they've been very heavily focused on missile technology. Um, because they want it's their it's their strategy to to defend their their turf, but um, that's a huge development. So just I mean uh, I hope to God we don't get to a nuclear war or anything like that. But you know you can win you can have the upper hand in nuclear war with that technology. People have been screaming in in um, weapons and military circles for years. I mean this hypersonic technology has been developed in the past ten years, really, really in the past ten years. And it's getting more and more sophisticated. And there's, you know, the people who understand these things are like, we have to catch up with this stuff. But there's just, it's as you describe it, it's just, it feels that there's no push to it. But I, I would definitely always, for cutting edge technology, always look to military technology. Because think about it, like all the technology that we're using, iPhone, right, the GPS system in it, all this, it all comes from military. The internet is from DARPA, right? So all the, all the really high tech stuff that has downstream effects, usually comes from uh, from military technology. Like the the hypersonic stuff, is this going to have commercial aviation ramifications? It does feel like it. 
I can't see why. You I know, because obviously there have been all these awful stories about Boeing recently, and it's like, this is basically a post-World War II company with post-World War II technology, and they're kind of ghosting. Yeah. I increasingly get that sense. It's kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, look, we don't want to, as you say, we've got ASML in the Netherlands. Mm. That's the most advanced uh, ultraviolet uh, uh, ultra uh, lithography technology in the world. Um, we still have edges here and there, but uh, in some places we don't. So probably just we're taking that into account. Well, by the way, as well, on the hypersonic thing, you know, the Iranians claim to have hypersonic missiles. Those are the ones that go in and out of the um, atmosphere. Which has presumably been given to them by the Russians. Or no, the no, but, but just, to be, or... just to be really clear, we have those ones. Right. So so the difference is that, um, that you have hypersonic missiles that go out of the atmosphere and then come like an ICBM. Down. Yeah, and these aren't uh, these aren't the crazy technologies. The, the the ones that are just used like cruise missiles, they never go out. Um, only the Chinese and the Russians have them. And I think the Chinese have hypersonic glide vehicles at the moment, which are slightly different technology. But the, these are very new technologies. Um, the Iranians, I think, have the ones that go in and out. And um, yesterday, uh, North Korea tested one. Yes. Now, those are problematic from an air defense point of view, as far as I understand, not an expert, but just from what I read. But it's pretty crazy that Iran, you know, it's not even, I mean, it depends where you look at by GDP, but nominal GDP, it's not even the 20 wealthiest countries in the world. For them to, cool. have, to have that kind of technology is, again, it's a real, should be a wake-up call. I think they might have got some of it from China. Yeah. But they engineer it domestically. They have good engineers. Very good engineers. You know, but one Looks of my so favorite well. stories of the 21st century, are you familiar with their, you know, this their strategy to block the Strait of Hormuz using high-speed boats. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. So they, it's quite funny. They, they, Peter Zahan goes on about this oh, one. It's very interesting. They basically, there's a, there was a boat in the early, 25, early 2000s. It broke the record to circumnavigate the British Isles, the challenge or something. Very fast speed boat. Somebody somehow, it's, it's like a novel, right? It's like John le Carré. Somebody somehow gets one of these to Switzerland, at which point... Like there's a transaction between the Revolutionary Guard and this person who's selling a boat which has broken the, the record to circumnavigate the UK, the British Isles, I should say. Um, uh, and they get it and they reverse engineer it. And that's now part, it's called the Seraj, high okay. speed, high speed speed boat. And then they reverse engineer it and they make so many of them. They reverse engineered the, the Reaper drone. It's now the Mahaja drone that they, they use. I think they send some of those speed boats to Venezuela. <laughs> what, what makes you say that? I think I saw pictures of them okay. in Venezuela. Because, crazy, because crazy of world. the Guana situation. Right, with, um, yeah, with the oil in Guyana and... Uh, like, uh, should we talk about the, the... So, the hypersonic stuff is genuine technological development. Yes, just to be clear, this is not new technology with Iran. The, the funny speedboats that yeah. are like something out of a Command and Conquer game Good, good are, anecdote. Are, are could be very effective, mm. but they're not like super high tech, right? But that's veering in the direction of what I call the commodification of military technology. That's um, now that's not going to result in downstream huge technology gains, right? So if you develop really high end weaponry in all throughout human history, that's that's tended to kind of filter down into the society. Um, the commodification angle. Obviously, isn't going to do that. The commodification angle comes from the opposite direction. It's that um, think of the GPS system, right? GPS is, de is devised as a military technology, and then it 
filters down into the consumer product market, right? We're all carrying around uh, tracking devices in our in our pockets at the moment. And um, and what that does is, so the military and the state is absolutely terrible at driving down costs. They're, they're, they're very good at hiring the top engineers to develop something big and expensive and new. And the markets aren't as good at that. But the markets are very good at taking that technology and commodifying it. Now, I don't mean that in the Marxist term or anything. I mean that uh, that's what they, they call it in business. So, for example, the example I use is, if anyone's old enough to remember, the BlackBerry was the original smartphone. It was really expensive. It was quite, well, toward the end, it wasn't so bad. But when it first came out, it was really expensive. And now, okay, you can buy an expensive uh, iPhone if you're into phones. But if you don't want to, you can get a smartphone for under 100 pounds, right? That's commodification. When uh, when a previously um, slightly luxury product becomes widely dispersed. And I wrote an article for National Interest, the DC, um, I don't know, what is it, military or geopolitics uh, publication. And um, I said the commodification process was happening in in the in the weapons market and basically um so if you look at like loads of the new weapon systems there's all uh, that they can be they're being built from like consumer technology right so the the high technologies there filters down into the consumer market now you've got all this really good like you can buy drones on aliexpress right if you want to buy one you can buy one and they're like pretty i don't own any but like not a hobbyist but you know I understand they're pretty good and you can attach a camera and you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with them. So it's pretty easy to then turn that into weaponry, right? And so that's exactly what's happened there. And that changes, that has massive ramifications not for technology, but that has massive ramifications for um, for uh, strategy and stuff. That's what we're seeing in the Red Sea and so on, yeah. And and this trend of this commodification of, of military technology um, where not necessarily high innovation, which is very, very cheap. Experience curve kicks in. Luxury good becomes very mundane, commonplace. It feels like that is intersecting with the decline of US sort of hegemony in a really powerful way, and not just in one place. We've talked about West Asia. There's Europe with Russia, China, Taiwan. I think one place people didn't expect perhaps was South America. Um, in yes. terms, I mean, that's, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, you know, the US has kind of militarily pacified that part of the world forever. Um, and yet you've now got this potential conflict between Guyana and Venezuela. Venezuela probably buying some military technology from the Russians, North Koreans, Iranians. What's your read on that? Um, I don't think it's going to... I mean, look, I'm not an expert on the region. Take it with a pinch of salt and predictions are to a penny. Um, I, don't, I don't get the sense it'll kick off. Um, Venezuela doesn't have a great army or anything like that. Like, it's bigger than Guyana. Guyana's tiny. Um, but I, mean, I don't have like 2,000 soldiers or something just like insane. Iguana? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, they don't have any capability at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, my feeling is that it probably won't go anywhere. I think it's pretty much a dispute over oil, right? They found oil off the, off the territory. But the U.S., I will say the U.S. is going to have to rethink its strategy in Latin America. I think that's becoming increasingly clear. You see also with um, Ecuador right now and it's kind of disintegrating states, Crime. Well, that's always been the case. Though. No, I know, but if you if you've got politicians in the US saying we need to secure our border, et cetera, et cetera, well, at some point they're gonna to have to address the issue of state breakdown in in places in South and Central America. Yeah, I think they probably I, I really think America should be thinking a lot about its its own hemisphere at the moment. I think that will be strategically wise for them. I think there's some appetite for that, but final question. The Conservative Party. <laughs> 
in this country. So you're saying lots of sharp things. I think I'm sure our audience think that too. Uh, you spoke at NatCon, the much um, uh, castigated, <laughs> derided, mocked NatCon. Um, and I, I found that interesting because clearly there's now, I actually find it more interesting than an opportunity to mock anybody. I don't. I think mocking people you disagree with is often a very foolish thing to do. Um, but there's clearly now a space beyond the centre-right and the Conservative Party for a different kind of politics. Um, and I think people are familiar with what that's saying on, quote-unquote, the culture wars. But then on the stuff you're talking about, political economy, foreign policy, geopolitics, doesn't really sound like it's saying much of interest. So, it, you know, on the one hand, the Tories could be out of power this year, mm. and in opposition they may have to completely rethink their yeah. project, their vision. Mm -hmm. But on this stuff, they don't really seem to be very intellectually curious. On the foreign policy stuff? Foreign policy, technology, industrial policy, geoeconomics, political economy. Um, so, so, well, I'll tell you my involvement to the extent that I have any involvement. Well, as at NACON, I guess. Um, I, I, was at, I got out of finance in, I want to get this right, um, 2024. I got out late 2021. And I'd already been doing kind of, I mean, I alluded to the fact I was in DC for some of the industrial policy discussions. That was while I was still working in finance. That was 2000, during the Trump era, I think 2018 or something. So I'd always been kind of knocking around and mainly on domestic policy issues. My two things were, I was very interested in industrial policy and I was one of the early, I think, pushers of family policy, although I wasn't writing under my own name at the time. Um, and my co-author Gladden Papel and I, I think, wrote one of the first um, one of the first pieces on on family policy. Um, that was the direction I was going in when when I kind of got out of finance, and uh, I still am working on especially family policy. I just did a paper on demographic change and so on with the demographer Paul Moreland um, for ARC, uh, which has got pretty good press, I guess. I mean, it's been really controversial because we talked about immigration, but. Um, I think it's, I think, and I think it was maligned unfairly, but um, family policy, I think, is really important. That speaks to demographic issues and so on. And th that's pretty much the extent to which um, I, I'm i involved in the political side here. I mean, I, look, I, the foreign policy stuff came up. It just became too, it's not foreign policy per se. It's like geoeconomics. That's mm. what I call it. The geoeconomics stuff came up and it was just too hard to ignore. I just felt like you couldn't really talk about anything seriously without taking it seriously. We've already discussed, I thought there was a massive gap in the market. I thought the consequences of not talking about it were were bad, bad for society and us and everything. Um, so I'm really only limited to writing about that stuff. And that's probably, you know, that's the only that's the only thing I aspire to. People are listening to some to some of it. I think this um this technology thing's catching on. I wrote a piece for America uh, National Interest in December and last week. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a, very, a suspiciously similar op-ed, um, and so I think that's I think that's filtering down. Um, I saw uh, what's his name, um, the head of Black CEO Blackwater, the um, uh, the uh, private military. Oh, company. Eric. Um, oh, crikey, Eric something. Yeah, he he put out a tweet on how the world's most like you know charismatic mercenary or whatever. Right, he put out a tweet on um, on something to do with commodification and so on. So I think that that stuff is definitely getting through. I think the geopolitics stuff is just going to become increasingly uh, prominent and obvious. But look, at the end of the day, it's really controversial. It is. I know that the demographic and, stuff. 
Well, that's controversial for a different reason, but right. the, the foreign policy stuff is really controversial right. because people, you know, accuse you of loving China and all this. Right. And it can be really annoying to deal with. But um, but look, I my attitude toward that is I'll keep writing about it. People can read it. They can call me stupid and say I'm wrong. Fine. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but I'm probably not. <laughs> and so, you know, and that's just kind of like it's it's better to have something to actually understand the situation rather than uh, be completely flummoxed by it. And there are changes. There are, I mean, I, I, I don't know, if, do you know Fiona Hill? Yeah. Fiona Hill's talking about all this multipolarity stuff. She's been talking about it for about a year as far as I can tell. She was interviewed in the uh, extensively in the Irish Times uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, and of course, just to say who Fiona Hill is, she, she's worked, worked for the National Security Council in various uh, uh, political administrations. She worked for the Trump one, but she's not a Trumpy. I think she's a Boshy. Uh, she's British, though. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, look, I think it'll, I think reality will catch up to people. But look, I don't, from, from the point of view of British politics, I'm, I'm far more interested in talking about industrial policy and family policy and the geopolitics or geoeconomics stuff. I'll just keep writing it, throw it out there. So on the family stays. stuff then, what's, what's your view? Well, we have a demographics crisis, a looming dem demographics crisis. Um... And it's not going away. <laughs> We're not having enough kids. As hard as Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg try. They're doing their bit. Um, we, we're not having enough children to replace the people in the economy. And this is causing, this will lead to an aging society and this will put enormous pressure. I mean, this is a whole other podcast. No, it is, right? yeah. We'll get you back. Fine. And I'm more than happy to talk about the family policy issue because, by the way, this used to be an issue on the left. If you look at Gunnar Myrtle and Alva Myrtle in Sweden and so on, they were quite cognizant of these problems. But the short answer for the Navarro audience is you can't have a welfare state in an aging population. You can't, okay? And immigration, heated debate, whatever, but trust, okay, trust me, it'll run into political limits. It's already running into political limits. And it's not actually a long-term solution anyway. Well, yeah, but I was going to say, because these trends are... Worldwide, because these trends are worldwide, yeah. exactly. And at a certain, and by the way, the world's catching up in terms of income, so it won't be. And and also, it's it's unfair. I, I think some of the aspects of brain drain that we impose on yeah. other countries is actually unfair. Um, I called that biological imperialism once for for your nice. Life. But um, look, we need to have more kids because if you want to have a functioning, if if the left wants a functioning welfare state, if the right wants a functioning economy with workers. We need to be able to produce them. If we get this kind of care home economy that we're slipping and sliding towards, everyone's going to lose. It's going to become a really fractured society and um, and wages are going to stagnate and a lot of people are going to be spending time taking care of the older people and so on. So it's a really serious issue. And I think it's one that um, it's one that's kind of controversial now, but it's catching on. And I, th I think that I, I can speak directly to that and say there is interest in that, in the Tory party and in Tory party circles. Well, some facts sure. on some facts on uh, you know the the demographic aging issue. So obviously, any, a fertility rate below two point one means that you're not you know standing still, so to speak. Mm. Um, and even just to sort of you know plateau, you would need some kind of immigration. Um, the UK right now is I think one point five eight. Half this is incredible. Half the countries in the world are below two point one. Mm. The world's top fifteen countries by GDP are below two point one, including India. As of this year, I think it's it's like 2.0 something. Uh, obviously, China's quite low because of the one-child policy. And this is what was really frightening for me was there was um, a report out by HSBC 
late last year. And they were, or maybe it was middle of last year, but last year. And they were basically saying that the UK, by the end of the 2030s, is looking at a fertility rate of one. Oh, yeah. Well, 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 well uh, myself and Paul Moreland did the paper, mm. uh, this paper on um, on demographics recently. And we looked at, because we wanted to, we, it was a modeling paper. We actually modeled a bunch of trends. And uh, I said, well, what, what do we assume for the uh, British birth rate going out to 2080? And so we looked, we have provisional data now because we have um, millennial fertility rates up until, well, we're, we're millennials, right? Mm. So we have actually reasonably decent millennial fertility rates and we actually have Gen Z fertility rates up to whatever, 25. It's falling off a cliff. I think we're going to go to South Korean levels. That was our assumption. That's, yeah. that's 0.8. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it feels that way. Which has huge implications, let's like say, for a welfare state. If you have an ever, ever older Fragment of the, I know. I know that people say, "Well, living actually, life expectancy is stagnated." There is a big chunk of the population which is going to live longer and longer and longer, and you've got a shrinking, relatively speaking, working age population. A huge problem. A huge problem which nobody really in politics is talking about at the moment. Well, they all talk about, and this is where the Tory party needs to change, and I'm speaking from that point of view. And Labour needs to change in its own way. But they say, like, "Oh, we'll push the pension fund out, the pension age out." It's rubbish. It doesn't do anything. It, it causes a big political fracas, and it doesn't do anything. But also, it's grandparents that help raise children. You know, that's like... The, that's where we need to go. That, that, those, are the those are the discussions we need to have. Those are the discussions. Or I, I heard a very interesting proposal the other day, which was um, if, you're, if you're below your means in terms of taking care of yourself when you're old, right, if you need to go into a care home or whatever, let's say that you, you know, are below average income or something like that, Let's say you're fairly able up until, I don't know, put an age on it, 76, right? Well, maybe then for five years, you go and help out at the care home, help other people. And then, you know, it's these sorts of things. Mm, there is a great example that was in the FT Weekend actually uh, last week about um, a, a co-living space in Vienna. Um, and it's aged, people aged between 27 and 72. And it... It helps uh, young families stay in the center of the city. Yeah. It helps reduce elderly care costs because they're around, you know, very dense communities and whatnot. I think this is the kind of smart policy we should be doing. Britain is awful for it. I said I had one last question, but this is one last question. But it's a very quick question. Obviously, you're very well read. People will be listening or watching. Thinking, wow, he's got so many interesting opinions about so many different things. What books would you recommend? Just quickly, two or three books. On what issue? Political economy. That like, have really inflected your thinking on these issues. Um, wow, it's going to be really popular with your audience um, because they're all Marxists. Um, the the most important books to understand what are currently happening are uh, Michael Hudson's Super Imperialism from the seventies that describes the global system better than anyone else. And by the way, it used to be uh, mandatory reading in the State Department. <laughs> Up until the 80s, at least, um, they kind of they should have kept reading Michael Hudson's Super Imperialism. It's a brilliant description of how the dollar system works, where it was born out of. A lot of the historical issues that we alluded to there around Bretton Woods, prior to that Treaty of Versailles, and so on. Really good history of all that. Um, I don't actually. I'm not. I'm not a Marxist guy, um, so I kind of like. I'm not a big fan of the like inter-Marxist debates or whatever. But you know what? Giovanni Arrighi wrote. Adam Smith goes to Beijing years ago now. It must be 20 years ago mm. or something. And I look, Super Imperialism is a brilliant book of history. I'm not as big a fan of Giovanni Arrighi. 
But he kind of got it right, didn't he? Mm. He said that China was going to pull up the global south and, you know, create a new world order. He's He's got it more right than most. Um, so I think, uh, I don't know if I'd actually recommend Riggy because I'm not, I went back and looked at the book again and I was like, oh, there's a lot of kind of internal debates here. Mm. It's less, quite a little bit less substantial than, than Michael Hudson's. But, um, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think the books have been written on this yet. Um, I might write one. Um, I would encourage other people to write them. Needs to be talked about more, but super imperialism is absolutely core to understand the um, the dollar dollar based financial system. And just to say very quickly, Britain, as basically a financial economy that's an offshoot of America, is completely tied to the the dollar based system in a way that Europe, even prior to the existence of the single currency, wasn't as aggressively tied. So it's very very important for British people to understand the um, the dollar based system. Would be my Michael Hudson's Super Imperialism. Get that on the reading list. Get it on the reading list. Philip Pilkington, thank you so much for joining us here on Downstream. Thank you very much for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. Head to navarra.media forward slash support. Or face the consequences.